Captain Talbot sat next to Neville Stryker, dressed in a black shirt and denim pants. A drooping mustache and a ten-day-old beard with strands of gray matched the color of the long, black, straight hair brushing his shoulders. The worn-in, dusty, low-rim black Stetson rested above a lean six-foot-three-inch frame when he unfolded to his full height. Rough around the edges, he is not a nice man, but he has few enemies. That's because most of them were left dead after confronting him. Wiser ones stayed away and kept their mouths shut. He made no friends. When he gazed at someone, his predatory eyes warned that he lived on a razor's edge of violence. If people knew his bloody past, they might think his favorite color was red. He came into people's lives and moved on. Although thankfully left, they couldn't forget him. And hardly a ladies' man. The fierceness of his features put most women off, and few considered him handsome. Years of hard riding and harsh weather had worn off stamped letters of his name from the saddle skirt. And most people said what now showed best fit the man, Evil Striker. You are listening to Share a Slice with Sean. So you've just heard the first of three extracts read by author Wes Rand. Um, Wes actually is a writer of Western novels. And uh, in particular, they're interesting because they're Western novels with a sort of um, political morality story, I guess, uh, similar to uh, George Orwell or some of these others. Um, and they definitely take on a sort of um, conservative libertarian bent. And although I'm by no means conservative, and I'm probably also by no means a libertarian, I still find it quite interesting. And uh, even if you're not into this kind of stuff, uh, Wes's books have a certain sort of Quentin Tarantino sort of feel about them that I think that is accessible by pretty much anybody even people outside of the Western genre. It's more along the lines of a kind of a spaghetti Western. So before we talk to Wes about his novels, about uh, his service in the armed services during the um, Vietnam War and libertarianism and Ayn Rand, um, I'd like to play a promo for a podcast that I find infinitely, infinitely interesting. It's um, from Victoria White, who's the host. And uh, it's called Fat Girl Chronicles, and it's all about food. And, and I mean, who doesn't like food? So let's listen to this promo, and then we'll move right into the interview. Fat Girl, Fat Girl Chronicles. I love food. Hi, guys. This is Vicky from Fat Girl Chronicles. It's a weekly comedy food podcast in which we talk about our love and struggles with food. Because let's be honest, we all enjoy food, so we might as well laugh about it. We talk about cheese debates, such as white American versus yellow American. Frankly, that is a huge debate. The best French fry from the fast food places and anything else that relates to food. So definitely check us out. You can find us on our social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. And also, you can find the Fat Girl Chronicles podcast on any of the podcasting apps, from Stitcher to iTunes to Google Music. Hope you enjoy. Come check us out.
So, of course, you can find uh, Fat Girl Chronicles on iTunes and, and wherever podcasts are sold for free. And uh, there'll be links to it in the show notes as well. And now, without further ado, um, let's listen to the interview with Wes Rand from Las Vegas. And uh, during the interview and towards the end of the interview, you'll also hear a couple more extracts from his books. So let's jump right in with the interview with Wes. Wes, that's your pen name, and you actually have authored, so far, three books, and they're in the Western genre. Uh, they're Left to Die, Cross Cut, Payback as Hell, and uh, there's another one on its way to I Read. Um, these Western books, um, I actually um, read a fair bit of Left to Die, which I believe is your first book that you wrote about about this character called, um, it's called Evil Striker. Uh, that's right. And e Evil Striker, it's actually that I won't give it away too much, but the name that's not his real name, but that's kind of what came, comes out. Things get worn off on a on a bag. I guess I guess I just gave it out away, but uh, <laughs> he. He's more yeah. of a, I mean, let me, let me just read the synopsis that I got for Left to Die. That's the one I'm reading right now. It goes, the story takes place in a northern California town near the Sierra foothills. Neville Stryker, the protagonist, is ambushed and left for dead on a trail. He walks to the next town, Egalitaria, formerly named Bickford and finds his horse, but he also finds a town held captive by a gang of murderous politicos. Major Neville Stryker, now known as Stryker, has had a relentless series of violently tragic losses and he reacts to aggression with a gun and a blade. Most of his enemies occupy graves. And uh, basically the story goes on in um, Morgan Bickford, uh, who was one of the uh, town's uh, leading citizens, uh, basically has to use uh, female persuasions, let's put it that way, to try to get Stryker to help her out to recover her ranch, uh, which has been sort of uh, taken by the government, for lack of a better term. Well, the, the town government, yeah. The, the mayor, who is called, uh, doesn't call himself the mayor, he calls himself the share helper. The share helper. And this is kind of yeah. like, exactly, because you have this town called Egalitaria. And, you know, yeah, it used to be called Bickford. It was named after uh, uh, Morgan and her husband, uh, last name Bickford. They, they, they started the town. Right. And basically, uh, the second book, which I haven't read anything all, at all about, uh, uh, Major Neville Stryker has been hired by a German industrialist. Uh, to protect him and his family from uh, union loggers who've gone insane, unionized loggers which have gone which have gone nuts. And uh, number three is payback as hell, and it looks like Neville Stryker is fighting for a someone who has who has won a newspaper in a in a uh, what is this a a, a, a game of. Um, <laughs> What is this, a well, card game? Well, what happened is uh, George Hurst, uh, who's the father of William Randolph Hurst, you know, who built uh, Hearst Castle. Oh. Well, George won the, um, won the newspaper, the San Francisco Examiner. 
in a poker game, which there really happened. And uh, uh, he eventually gave the newspaper to his son, William Randolph, to run. Uh, but I'm pretending that uh, George had trouble collecting on the poker debt, that uh, the man who owned the paper didn't want to turn the paper over uh, because of political concerns. And because of the paper was won in a, in a poker game, and George Hearst at that time was actually a senator, a United States senator. Okay. Uh, so he, uh, on the recommendation of Morgan, uh, he, he hires uh, Stryker to help persuade the, the owner, whose name Elaine Montel, to help, uh, it, which is not his real name, by the way. I made that part up. To uh, get uh, Elaine Montel to go ahead and sign the deed of the paper over to George so that he can give it to his son, William Randolph. And, and I mean, so these, these stories, they have some, um, some historical uh, 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 backing to them. What I noticed it with the stories when, when I read them is that they, they all, to me at least, had sort of a, almost like a, ca- they were like cautionary tales uh, against, uh, I guess, what could be called um, the subversion of um, uh, capitalism and, and, uh, and right to property. Yeah, and right, individualism. Um, it, it, I, I know that there are a lot of books out there that are nonfiction uh, who are written by conservative authors. I haven't seen too many fiction books um, that are on the conservative side. In, in fact, if, if you go to a movie, um, I'm trying to recall if there's any movies where let's say a corporation is depicted as a, a, a good organization. Oh, yeah. Uh, you're not, uh, not going to get I, that. Yeah, I haven't seen any of those. And lots of times the corporation is a evil uh, chemical company dumping hazardous waste into the environment, or it's a corporation that's squashing the little guy. Uh, and m- many times they'll have the... Uh, a conservative uh, president's picture behind the CEO's desk, uh, and you know. So, um, I, I I thought when I started writing these books that it was they were just going to be Western books. Uh, but when I first started writing about the uh, the female uh, protagonist uh, Morgan, I wanted to give her some characteristics that I admire. And uh, I couldn't have Stryker do that because he's he doesn't really have those kinds of principles. Uh, but I assigned those principles to Morgan, and uh, she has the uh, the individualism, objectivism uh, philosophy. So I, l- I let her do that, and he's he's like the military. You know, he comes yeah. in and he's helps the persuade. Right. He he preserves the freedom, so to speak. Uh, but like the military, you know, you, you can't have Stryker around all the time. Uh, he, he gets, uh, he, he leaves mud and blood on the carpet, you know, so. Yeah. He, <laughs> he's not, he's not, he's not good for that. So you, you got to take your boots off and he's not the one who's going <laughs> to take his boots off before going onto the carpet. Right. And, uh, actually, um, that's part of the fun part of the, about this book. See, even though, I mean, my political views personally don't, tr- probably don't track, that far uh, along the libertarian bent, uh, 
uh, still the the books are fun. I mean, it's like it's almost like a um, it's almost like a maybe a conservative slash libertarian um, Quentin Tarantino. I mean, some of the violence and the the sex is like a it's like a Quentin Tarantino film almost to me. <laughs> well, I write initially and and firstly I write for my own pleasure. I I write what uh, I want to read. And so I, I let the, I, I let that guide me. And then secondly, yes, I I throw in some uh, uh, underlying themes uh, of some political views into it. Uh, and uh, but again, it's it's what I what I want to read. And I wasn't reading it. I, I didn't find it. And so uh, when I first started. Uh, on left the dice, uh, I thought, well, I'll, I'll just write what I want to read here. If I can't find what I want, then I'll, I'll put it on paper myself. And that's how I got started. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a little bit about uh, some of these books like um, Arahorn. Have you ever heard of a book called Arahorn, for instance? No, I have not, no. Oh, okay, it's by Samuel Butler, actually. It was in the, uh, it was in the late 19th century. And uh, he, this, this, this explorer comes across this, uh, this other land, right? And uh, basically, it's, it's a dystopia. So they've, they've given up all technology, this lot. Uh, and uh, they, it's just, it's kind of interesting because it, it, it's also sort of like a mob, a mob rule kind of situation going on there as well. It's been compared sort of, to you know, uh, 1984, some of these other things. It sounds like Mad Mad uh, Mad Max Thunderdome or something. Mad Max Thunderdome, yeah. And and your books actually remind me a little bit of um, uh, George Orwell's Animal Farm because mm -hmm. I see them as being a response to um, personally not so much uh, socialism necessarily, but communism, because it's like taking a whole step further, right? It's a right. redistribution of wealth completely. Right. At, at the point of a gun. The communism is socialism at the point of a gun. And, right. And, and the animal farm was well, had to be written uh, disguised as animals. But yes, you're right. It was, uh, it, it was written... Uh, uh, against communism, yeah, the but, Soviet, uh, uh, the uh, what was it, uh, nineteen? This would have been Lenin or Lenin, I think so. Yeah, nineteen seventeen uh, around that area. It, yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean, and and this, I mean, it makes sense too. I mean, uh, your pen name gave it away because Wes Rand, so <laughs> the, Ayn Rand, objectionism. I mean, you have you have uh, discussions about you know. Egalitaria again, politicos. Um, Morgan Bickford wants to, you know, recover her assets, her individuality, right? Uh, the German industrious. He he has, he he wants control over the media, like a media situation. Well, he uh, in in Crosscut, um, Hans has a. Has oh, a I got it going. wrong. It's payback. Yeah. Yeah. Has, has a steam donkey, and a steam donkey was introduced in, in uh, forestry. Steam uh, donkey, okay. Yeah, about that period of time. And what it what it was was actually a steam engine uh, that hauled logs. It, it made log hauling a lot easier. Mm. Uh, before they were just using uh, oxen mm -hmm. uh, to haul logs, and they were it was very dangerous. And of course, uh, it wasn't too 
easy on the on the oxen either. So um, they they came out with these uh, steam donkeys, and uh, it, it made it a lot more uh, efficient uh, and not as as risky. Uh, but I'm, I'm pretending that uh, they had a lot of trouble with uh, labor because it put uh, a lot of the right. loggers out of jobs. Yeah. But in order to have progress, uh, uh, sometimes uh, jobs have to be moved around. And in, so in this case, yes, uh, this book, uh, Crosscut, dealt mostly with uh, uh, the inefficiencies of, of union and uh, the thuggery of unions. Uh, and I won't give it away what actually happens in no. it, but uh, it, uh, but it, it it ended somewhat similarly to uh, to uh, Fountainhead. If if you read that book, yeah, I haven't. I haven't. I need to sometime. Uh, I I I briefly watched part of the movie. There was a movie made in the fifties, I think, but uh, I had to turn it off. Uh, had other things to do, but I de- I definitely should. Uh, libertarianism gets a pretty bad rap. Uh, they get gets kind of attacked from a lot of different sides, and so I I, I need to give it. Uh, I need to give Ayn Rand its uh, her uh, a proper uh, chance. Let's put it that way, and uh, give it a read. Fountainhead. That that I mean that just like um, Atlas Shrugged. This is uh, this is fiction, right? Fiction with a message. Yes, right. Uh, one of the few fictional books out there that are on the conservative bent. But when I started writing these books, uh, I didn't want to, I didn't start out uh, making the, the political philosophy as the main uh, theme of the stories. Uh, there's there's a lot more to it. Yeah. The, the underlying theme, yes, has, has the political undertones to it, but the uh, um, but the the main the main part of or the main character striker uh he, he's i got tired of reading about the you know the good guys right. riding the white horses wearing the white hats and they were going to capture the the bad guy and take him back to stand trial and all of that and i i wanted the bad guys to meet up with someone who's even even better. More mean, yeah, <laughs> than they were, you know. And I think I think the public at large, you know, when you have a, a bad guy, uh, you want him to be dealt with harshly, you know. You you want his throat slit, or you you want him gunned down, or, or you know, or, or whatever. You want him to get his due. Well, Stryker does that. Yeah, I mean, he's a he's a machine. He's got some sort of wicked uh, trident type. Uh weapon there he just like goes goes crazy like just the fastest draw with his with his gun the the quickest uh taking the knife out i think he dealt with uh was it harry i think was uh, i won't give yes. it away but he's the, yeah, the harry. Yeah. nasty one that was towards the beginning of the book and uh right and that's it, a that's called a sigh a sigh it's a, yeah it's a three-pronged weapon uh uh, developed in China, uh, brought to uh, Okinawa, and the Japanese used it as a fighting tool. Uh, Stryker grew up in San Francisco, trained by an Asian uncle in the arts. Uh, so he he does have those skills in addition to uh, being able to use the, the Colt 44, uh, the Peacemaker, efficiently. 
that's an interesting combo, like the fact that he grew, this character grew up in a city like San Francisco and then basically went to this little tiny place, you know, it's interesting. Well, he, he was sent east to go to school by his uncle. His parents were butchered in front of him on the, on the waterfront down there, the Embarcadero. Like Batman. So his parents, I mean, his uncle sent him to, uh, to, to East to go to school. And then he got caught up in the Civil War. Um, then he received a recommendation after the war to go to West Point, which he did. And, and then uh, after spending uh, several years in the Army, um, uh, uh, then, then he, he, he went to work for the House of Morgan and uh, investment banking. And then that's when he met his wife. Uh, and then she was accidentally killed in an artillery demonstration, and he murdered the man most responsible for right, that. Right, right. I so, read that. And then that's why he's he's on the run. He's a he's a fugitive, and uh, he's a he really does make a good example of what I would call almost like an antihero. Like so, he he's like he's not like you know Will Rogers. They're not all gonna break out in song next to the campfire and yodel and do what, do what they used to do with their white horses, etc. <laughs> no, all... he's not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not, it's not that kind of Western at all. And, uh, I mean, he's at, he's in it for himself, right? I mean, that's what I get from, from reading what little I read so far is he's in this for himself, even after, he he made uh, the deal. Well, the deal that he made with um, uh, Morgan. Morgan was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, after the 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 sex was done, uh, he said, "No, no, no, but that's great, but I want forty percent as well, <laughs> right?" Yeah, I think I think he says he, you know, she's assuming that her. Her sex is good enough, but yeah. uh, he says something to the effect, well, I gave as good I, as I right, got. Right, exactly. And, and yeah, I want 40%. <laughs> I want 40%. And uh, is that, and, and also, like, uh, he's, like, kind of, I noticed that he's he's very divorced from his 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 feelings, you know, or, or, or and, and let me rephrase that, no, because while, uh, uh, during the pre-coital coital, uh, lie down there, he was, I, I detected that he was sort of, um, wanting to maybe reach out a little bit but he kept himself back and you can tell i probably had that probably that i haven't gotten far enough in this book to know what happens but um is 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 he like a caricature of maybe a uh someone in a an objective objectivist uh philosophy someone who's in it completely for themselves and disregards all other things is that kind of what he is well, what has happened to Stryker as over the years? He's he's had a series of tra- tragic losses, mm. um, just one right after the other. Hello, Morgan. She looked even better than he remembered. Her brunette hair was parted on one side and swept back over an ear as she had it in egalitaria. She wore a white, starched cotton shirt with flap pockets and shoulder epaulets. Her sleeves were rolled up to her elbows and she had turned up her collar. Her shirt top spread open to reveal tanned skin stretching above her delicate collarbones. A khaki skirt with high-top leather boots completed the look. Shit fire, woman. He folded the paper and started to rise. No, don't get up. Here. Morgan extended an envelope. Stryker took it, but didn't open it. It's a check for 16000 from Mr. Hearst. 
He bought the mine and I had him pay 40% directly to you, Morgan explained. She sidestepped to the empty chair and seated herself in the front edge of its cushion, hands on her knees, back straight as a board. Morgan, I know about your deal with Mr. Hurst. She stopped him before he could protest. I recommended you, remember? She gave him a hint of a smile, and I know how much he's paying you. The smile faded. We had a deal, you and me. You kept your part of the bargain. I'll keep mine. An awkward pause ensued, each waiting for the other to end it. Stryker sat motionless in his chair. Morgan remained rigid in hers. Stryker, she began, West Point, a major in the artillery, investment banker with the House of Morgan, and wanted for murdering the man who caused your wife's death. Stryker's eyebrow twitched. She, or more likely Hearst, had investigated his past. Sure, Hearst, as a senator, could and would have done that before hiring him. He should have known. What was her name? Lee, Stryker said, as if talking to himself, then more directly to Morgan. Her name was Lee. I'm sorry. A long time ago, Morgan, Stryker replies, surprised him. He suddenly realized with that answer he was putting his deceased wife in the past. Something he had never done before. He always carried her memory in his breast pocket. Now he struggled with the realization he was letting her fade back in time. And uh, in the books, I I show some flashbacks and, and, and show how each time uh, these losses, yeah. these violent, tragic losses, they've driven him deeper and deeper into himself to where now he's like a wounded, snarling animal right. that, that bites back and he bites back hard uh, whenever he's attacked, you know, whenever he's, he's crossed. So he's he's a very a very difficult man at this point, and uh, uh, he he reacts to aggression with uh, deadly violence. Yeah, you can tell that I'm I'm reading way too much into the political business here and then the philosophical business. It sounds as, like as you said, what you're focusing on is a compelling story here, which it is. It's a page turner, and you just uh, you know adding. A little extra to it, like a sort of a uh, an underpinning of uh, like almost like a morality story, sort of where you're. So, yeah, but I let yeah, and but I but let, the let the other characters character, live. Yeah, I you know, I let Morgan, uh, I let her uh, have the principles. I let her have the morality. Um, th- this guy Stryker, uh, he doesn't have a lot of that. He even though he, he went to West Point and he was a supposedly a gentleman at one point and, and a businessman. Uh, now he's not so good with the social graces. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And speaking of West Point, I mean, you did go into military service yourself, right? So in 1966, you were drafted during uh, <laughs> yeah. Lyndon yeah. B. Johnson's uh, term there. Uh, and that was would have been in the middle of Vietnam, and things would have been getting progressively more ugly. Of course, I wasn't even a, I wasn't even a twinkle in my dad's eye back then, <laughs> right? But um, I have sort of a, an a, an inkling of what was going on back then. You had the, the hippie movement, what probably wasn't really quite there yet. Uh, it was probably cooking on its way, and. Uh, and Richard Nixon wasn't in yet, but uh, they're, they're pro- I mean, uh, the, the war probably was starting to kind of drag on back then when you got drafted. 
Yeah, I, I, I got drafted in 1966, and uh, um, I was given the, <laughs> the company commander at that time in basic training told me I, I had the option of uh, going to Vietnam in the infantry or going to OCS. And he, <laughs> so, so I picked OCS, yeah. Officer Canada. Yeah. So, and uh, he even picked out that I should go into artillery, which I did. So the, the striker uh, has a background in artillery, and right. that's because I know something about artillery as a, as well. But I did not go overseas. I imagine uh, the military thought our men would be safer in Vietnam if they kept me over here. I guess I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I ended up as an instructor. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the the three years that I was in, uh, an instructor, I taught the ROTC how to adjust artillery fire. And then that was mainly my job. And then when I got out, I, I started back to school, but I needed extra money. So I spent another four years in the, in the reserve. And that's when I, uh, I, I got up to a, a rank of captain. And then I got out of the service. That was it. Any any hard feelings for the service, or are you just uh... no? You know, I had be, before I, I actually got drafted into the service as a typical teenager. Uh, I think at nineteen, I had a cranial rectal inversion. Oh, and uh, uh, you know, I had my head up my ass, <laughs> and um, and uh, so um, by the time uh, I got out of the army. Uh, I pretty much saw things how they were. I, it, it, actually, I started I started reading the Anne Rand books in the, in right. the latrine at night oh. <laughs> during, while I was in OCS. So uh, uh, so I got my moral compass righted and uh, decided to try to make something out of myself. By the time I got out, uh, I was ready to, to get on with life. So I, to me, the military was a good thing. Yeah, I mean. Uh uh, so long as you're not being shot at by, jungle, it's things are good. I probably wouldn't have minded uh, going over if I could come back with my arms and legs and nuts. Yeah, but uh, but uh, it, overall, one of my happiest moments though was seeing Welcome to Fort Knox in the rearview mirror, and you know when I left. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, uh, does does your do you have any you have any interesting anecdotes from that area that uh, of your life that might have like influenced your your uh, your stories here, your books or your your philosophical views that you can think of? Like uh, any wild and crazy times in the military? <laughs> well, yeah, I had some. Um, I did learn the respect for uh, the the sergeants uh, and. Uh, I'll give you one anecdote that I I I still remember. We were bringing over some basic trainees. I was a second lieutenant at that time. We were bringing some basic trainees over. Uh, they'd just come from the reception station. They still were in their civilian clothing, and uh, we had them there. They were standing in the formation. Uh, I don't know. It was two or three o'clock in the morning. It was it was not probably a good time. And there was a kid in the back row who was who was crying. And this big uh, black sergeant, and I forget his name, but the Smokey the Bear hat. And he was huge. He wore two pistol belts. That's that's how big it was. And uh, he he stuck that Smokey the Bear hat brim in that kid's face. And what's the matter, you boy? And he said, it's crying. He said, uh, you miss your mama? 
And the kid nodded his head. And he said, you miss your daddy? And he nodded his head. And he said, you miss your girlfriend too? And he nodded his head. And he says, then the sergeant said, well, I'm your girlfriend now. Oh, my God. He said, if you want me to, I'll take you back behind the barracks here and F you if you don't stop that crying. You want me to F you? And, you know, you know what I mean there. Yeah, and yeah. The, and the boy says, no drill sergeant. Well, let's stop that kid from crying. And and it shaped up everyone else in that platoon. And I thought within like just a few seconds, uh, he took this kid from the civilian world into the Army. And I thought how brilliant that uh, that technique was. Yeah, I mean, uh, basically, it, it, it probably cut off certain amounts of things in his head. I'm trying to intellectualize it here a bit, but basically he, he realized that uh, he, he had to basically buck up. Yeah, and, uh, what he did is he, 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 he pulled, he cut the umbilical cord and pulled that kid out from underneath the skirt. Mama yeah. skirt, you know, and because uh, you're in the army now, so that was that's the way it is. Wow, I don't know how long I'd last. Well, <laughs> I, I, th that that said, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I guess we can all surprise ourselves. You know, I mean, uh, when you're in the situation, he might have surprised himself after that and realized who knows oh, okay, what I happened. Do it, yeah. Who knows what happened to that kid? He might have gone on and been a lifer. <laughs> In the army, <laughs> you you were born and and raised in Kingsport, Tennessee, yeah, and you moved to Las Vegas. I looked up Kingsport, and uh, <laughs> I found some interesting things. Apparently, at one point, uh, well, apparently they have lots of roundabouts, and uh, also uh, they they killed uh, they had to kill a circus uh, elephant at one point. Oh, too. that yeah, an Irwin. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the uh, the elephant accidentally killed somebody. Jeez, uh, uh, in the circus, and so I guess they had some kind of trial, and they found the elephant guilty, and they hanged him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for all of our animal, you know, our, our our animal rights friends, I mean, that is tragic. But I mean, I'm just trying to picture how the hell you hang an elephant. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well. Um, I often say, you know, coming from, no disrespect, but coming from some parts of the, that area, I, the Army kind of rescued me, I guess. So, um, yeah, I grew up in, in Kingsport, but I'd, I'd always wanted to to come west. I had these visions of the cowboys and uh, wanted to be out here in the west. And then uh, when uh, I got out of the service, I married a girl who had health problems and we had to move to a dry climate. So we, we moved to Arizona, and then the, the company that I worked for at that time moved me up to Las Vegas. So I just ended up here, and uh, that was in 1970, and and uh, I like Las Vegas, and I've been here since. Yeah, actually, uh, I mean, my, my father-in-law, he um, he grew up in Barbados, and uh, then he joined the um, the uh, British Army, and he it was almost like he was running away. He's like, either I stay in Barbados and I work as a bank teller and never go anywhere, right? Or I go into the army, the British army. And then he ended up in, um, in Western, uh, Western Germany, uh, hmm. okay. which was an interesting place for a, a black man to be in, in the, 19, the early 1960s. Uh, it, it got harrowing at times, apparently. But uh, he uh, actually um, 
it, it broadened his horizons because then he went to like, um, you know, went to all these different places. And I'm not saying that you went to like Amsterdam or any of these exciting places when you were teaching our, our artillery, but <clears throat> it still took you out of that little town. Right. And it yes. brought yeah, you somewhere it, else. Yeah. Yeah, it did. And, um, uh, I, I ended up at Fort Ord for a while in, uh, California. Uh, so I spent some time out there. Yeah. That, that was in the service. So I did travel around the country, uh, in the army. And then after the army, uh, I did some travel internationally and, and went to parts of Europe and, and, uh, around. So got a little bit of uh, a background of how the other parts of the world exist uh, yeah. outside of the United States and, and developed a real appreciation for democracy, like what we have here. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's different, there's obviously different layers, different flavors. I mean, my father, he, he went, uh, um, backpacking, uh, in 1967 during the, uh, seven day war, he found himself in Israel, which was, I mean, kind of crazy. And the only thing that saved him was the, uh, Canadian flag on his, uh, on his backpack. <laughs> they uh -huh. look at that and they said, Oh, Canada. They're like, that's great. Many lakes. Um, <laughs> they, they they didn't let him go before he uh before he uh acted as their uh their chef their cook for about a month <laughs> <laughs> who but, who was the they who was the captain by i believe it was the uh they i think they were e egyptian soldiers oh, okay and they weren't they weren't the israeli army they were they were another our opposing army during the time so he he was okay, but they knew all about Ontario and the Great Lakes. It was very interesting. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, completely. And I, I mean, uh, when it comes to democracy, um, yeah, there's, there's different, there's different kinds. Uh, I'm Canada. So sometimes I think of us as being almost like, uh, sort of a mishmash between Britain and in the U S I guess in many different ways, we're kind of like, not quite like the U S we're not quite like Britain. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like I said, I visited um, Montreal and, and on over into Quebec City. And uh, um, your French culture there is, uh, is uh, different, certainly different than the western part of Canada. Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. I, I knew that because I actually grew up in, uh, in uh, Regina, Saskatchewan, which is a small uh, town. Uh, midwestern town and uh, believe me when i when i left the subway station and got out onto st catherine street in montreal and saw a giant neon lit stri strip club on the main <laughs> street i knew that there was something completely different about where i was ending up <laughs> <laughs> i felt the same way pulling into las vegas <laughs> yeah same thing time. <laughs> Same thing. Vegas is like that. And uh, my my wife and I actually got remarried when we were in uh, Las Vegas at a small, like, uh, um, as, a, as a lark, a small uh, marriage, uh, what was it? Uh, One uh, of Elvis the wedding Presley. chapels? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We, we did that for fun. It wasn't legally binding in any way. It was fun, though. You bastard, Phyllis screamed at her husband. For a woman of her age and girth, she moved with surprising agility, striking Blankton's shoulders with outstretched arms, shoving him off balance. Blankton, caught off guard by his wife's attack, stumbled backwards, tripping over his own feet. He attempted to right himself by clutching at the door jamb, 
but that effort only served to keep him upright until he continued across the three-foot balcony and flipped over the railing. Strangely, Blankton remained silent as he fell. He landed face down and lengthwise on the spike fence below. The sharp, fenial tips riveted his torso to the fence from his open mouth to his groin. Although his distributed weight kept the spikes from puncturing completely through his body, enough found vital organs to kill him. But not instantly. And Mrs. Blankton watched in horror from the balcony above as his body wiggled and struggled until the butt of Stryker's peacemaker struck the back of her skull. Fifteen minutes later, she woke to find herself sitting, more accurately, slumping on a straight-back chair downstairs in the middle of the stage floor with a rope around her neck. The rope tightened, pulling her body upright. She tried to scream for help, but the rope kept getting tighter, pulling higher. She somehow managed to get to her feet and step upon the chair. Stryker came round in front of her. Mrs. Blanken, consumed with fear, stared down at him. Eyes opened wide. What are you? She rose up on her toes. Why? You got... Ah! She nearly lost her balance. Stryker put his boot on the front of the chair and shoved. He left the Savoy the same way he came in and started off for Fisherman's Wharf. Payback is hell, he growled. Um, so uh, let, let's talk a little bit about Westerns. I mean, you cover this a bit. I mean, you were inspired by West, like the Wild West a bit or the West uh, when right. you were a kid. Um, so the genre of Westerns, I mean, that was a big deal in the, I mean, I guess starting in the 30s, like 30, 40, 50, 60s you know, all this like gun smoke, like all those shows in the sixties, et cetera. And then in the seventies, it's like, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but they seem to kind of fade a bit. I mean, you had the spaghetti Westerns, right? But that wasn't really the U S that was something else. And then, well, mm -hmm. go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. And even there you, you had the, the Western was brought back. It became a tired genre as I've heard often. And uh, But what brought the Western back there for a time being with, with the Spaghetti Westerns was the anti-hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, they moved from Roy Rogers and Gene Autry and, and uh, uh, Hopalong Cassidy. They, 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 the Western moved away from that. And then all of a sudden you had this anti-hero of, you know, the Clint Eastwood right. uh, stories. Um, and and that's what brought back the, the Western there for for a time, and then they uh, over the past uh, several years uh, it got tired again, and people moved away from it. With with my character, I wanted to write about this this character, the striker character, uh, but it was going to be difficult to write to put him in you know t- today's environment. So I had to go back to the Wild West to uh, to put him into. In an environment where he could have more freedom uh, to, to move around and and be evil striker, so that's how he ended up in the West. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, one thing I noticed is that uh, basically, um, in order to be, in order to demonstrate the the full logical end game of this idea of these politicos coming in and taking over this small town, and then and then this. Um, this antihero coming in and using force, like uh, deadly force, uh, mm-hmm. vigilante type force. Uh, I mean, it, it, you you can watch some movie set in the 1980s and 1990s, but it's not as believable as you put it back in the Wild West, where everybody was basically kind of on their own in these small yeah. towns, right? Yeah, and 
uh, you know, they had the Marxism, and actually Marxism was the big thing back uh, in Europe back right. during that time. Uh, it was all all the rage uh, was Marxism. You know, I think Marx uh, was born like in eighteen forty or some some sometime mm-hmm. period das in there. Capital, and, yeah. And, yeah, and and so it, it was all the rage, and uh, and and so uh, I I thought, well, I'll use it. You know, and that's they changed the town from uh, Bigford to Egalitaria. The mayor wasn't the mayor; he was the share helper, and he was going to have everyone uh, receive all the the proceeds of uh, the Morgan's mine and her ranch. They were all going to get an equal share, but it turned out that the share helper was a little bit more equal yeah. than and the others. Farm. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And uh, so I, that's how it ended up uh, Western, and that's how it ended up with. Uh, some of the political overtones, but also living out. Tell you this: living out here in Las Vegas in the West, I spend a lot of time up in Utah. I have a cabin up there, and I go up there and write. And uh, it's in the middle of three national parks: Bryce, uh, Zion, and the Grand Canyon. And in the summertime, uh, the the tourist buses are are just filled with Europeans. Uh, they have a little rodeo there in uh, in, in Bryce, and uh, oftentimes I'll go to it. There may be five or six hundred people in the stands. I'll be the only American. Well, okay, uh, the they're rest, into it. Yeah, they're all they're all the rest are Europeans. And I read an article in the paper, in the Family Weekly or something like that. It's, it's 15, 16 years ago, and they had done a survey. And uh, asking Europeans what American landmark that they most wanted to see when they came to America. Uh, and one would think, well, maybe it's the Washington Monument or, or the Statue of Liberty or, or even a national park. No, it wasn't any of those. It was the American cowboy. Nice. American. And, and there was, uh, where did that come from? Well, there was this guy named Carl May in Germany. Uh, back in the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s, and he was a common thief, a scoundrel. Uh, he'd been in and out of prison uh, numerous times. Uh, and, but while he was in prison, uh, this Carl May uh, found out that he, he liked to write, and he liked to write westerns. So he wrote all these western books while he was in prison. And he ended up, uh, according to the the, the magazine uh, Cowboys and Indians, he, he ended up selling more Western books than Louis L'Amour and Zane Grey combined. And that's how the Europeans, I think, developed their love for the for the cowboy who has the you know the character, the virtues, the the strong will. You know, they that that's who they want to see when they come to America. You know, it's it. In my mind, it's sort of similar to you know a nineteen seven a nineteen fifty seven Chevy or a you know or a, like a jukebox or like the cowboy is like a piece of a solid piece of Americana, you know. Yeah, it's like the yeah. hamburger and fries, same thing. Like the blue jeans, the whole thing. It 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 is America. It is quintessentially American. Uh, that's that's what you i think that's how we're, we're we're looked upon you know with the reagan he was called all oh, that american cowboy yeah you because know, he wore a, he wore a western hat and then he started in some western movies you know, so yeah they call him american cowboy yeah <laughs> it's a, yeah and uh as i as i said like uh, i i like some of those old movies and uh you know i i was reading your book here and i'm like uh it, it's lots and i mean it's it's tons of fun do, do you have any 
advice for uh, authors who would want to break into the Western genre, though? Like, do you do you have any sort of advice to like how it could be marketed or something like that? Uh, I didn't really start to try to market these books until I, w- I wanted to write three of them to have a trilogy, and I wasn't right. sure if I were going to go ahead with it, but now I am. Uh, so I waited until I got the third book completed, uh, Payback as Hell, and then I decided to uh, go out and, and try to market the books. And so now I'm starting to have some success in that area. As far as writing uh, the Westerns, Man, just write what you feel. Um, uh, w- w- when I sit down to write, I've never had writer's block. Uh, just, so oftentimes, I'll just sit down and say, "I wonder what Stryker's up to today," and I'll just start. I'll just start writing, and it just it just comes right out of the fingers. Uh, so you have to write what you're passionate about. If if you're not passionate about it, then you, then you might have that dreaded writer's block that you hear so many people talk about. But I think if you're passionate about it. Um, you're, you're going to do well and you're going to get into it. And you have to, you can't just sit down uh, for 15 minutes and write. You, you have to get to a very quiet place, sit down and get into the depth of the, of the story. And that, that's where you get the, the good writing, I think. And, uh, and, and, and it's fun. And it's fun to, to get into that area where you can, you can really develop the, a story and a plot and the characters. Yeah, I, I totally, I mean, I, I agree completely for me. Uh, it's like, a, and the, I think the, the current jargon for that is context switch. You got to like really, you got to ease your way into it kind of deal. Um, so I, I agree. Um, listen, um, your books, Left to Die, Crosscut, Payback is Hell, and you have an upcoming book. I believe it's called "It Was to Die For." Is that being yes, worked on? I, yeah, you, you hear so many of the girls uh, talk about going to a, a, a restaurant, and the food is it just to, to die, die for. for. Yeah. <laughs> well, in this case, Death it is was. Real. To, yeah, <laughs> it was to die for. <laughs> okay, so that's on its way then. Yes. Basically, perfect. And, right. And like I'd like to thank uh, Tim Chismar as well. He uh, is my friend who uh, brought me to you. He actually told me about these books and about your work, which are all fantastic. And I'm going to be putting links to the Amazon and the Apple uh, books for all of these on the uh, on the show notes. And uh, yeah, I'd just like to thank you so so much for being on the show today, Wes. Well, thank you, Sean. Enjoy it. Well, that's about it for this episode. I'd really like to thank you for listening, and uh, I'd like to thank Wes for being on the show. Um, You can find out about Wes Rand and his books in the show notes if you go to shareslicepodcast.com. There you'll also find links to Fat Girl Chronicles, and you'll find a link to the um, band, the Fantastic Plastics. They're the ones who graciously provided me with the music for this podcast and uh, in addition to all this i'd encourage you to go check out freethinkradio.com and uh, i'm part of that network i'm sort of the uh, npr version of the interview show i'm maybe the a little bit more um 
low-key version, I guess, of, of a show. Uh, there you'll find much more um, higher-key, I guess might be the term, shows like It's Time for the Show. And uh, a lot of these shows are actually made by people in the Church of the Subgenius, and I'm a member of that church now. So um, check it out. It's very interesting, and it's very different. Go to freethinkradio.com. Uh, and also check out It's Time for the Show, uh, made by Hypercube folks over there, and you can find a link to that in the show notes. As always, I'd like you to encourage you to go to the website, shareslicepodcast.com. Also, please, please follow me at Twitter, at Slices Podcast, and also please follow me on Instagram, uh, shareslicepodcast on Instagram. And, uh, if you could leave a review at Apple Podcasts, I know everybody always pleads with their listeners to do this, but it really does help not only with the numbers, but it also really helps the psychiatric or psychological um, mindset of those people who put out podcasts, especially indie podcasters, because it feels like I'm basically putting things out into a void. So if you could leave a review, positive or negative, uh, preferably five stars over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you review podcasts or just send me an email. It would be absolutely fantastic. So I'd like to thank you all for listening and please join me next time for the next interview. Have a great day. What the hell do you think you're doing? Dragging your butt through the day, selling body and soul to a bunch of bland normals? Acting stupid so they'll think you're one of them? Tired of getting all of the guilt, but none of the sex? There is a simple answer, dear friend. A glowing beacon of slack amidst the turmoil and darkness. It's J.R. Bob Dobbs, the living slack master in his church of the subgenius. Bob brings a new destiny for the abnormal. For Bob comes to justify our sins, to unmask the conspiracy, and to get us back the slack they stole away. It's us versus them. Are you gonna fry in hell on earth alongside the pink boys? Or will you pull the wool over your own eyes and accept Bob into your mind? Repent, quit your job, slack off, and praise Bob! Church of the Sub-Genius Eternal Salvation or Triple Your Money Back.